Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into new developments in the Missouri education community. If you are a school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you are in the right place. We are in the pocket where the General Assembly has wrapped up its work for the spring and the governor has yet to sign off on much of the legislation. And today we have a very special guest with us to give us the big takeaways for Missouri Public Schools from the 2022 general session. As many of our listeners know, Scott Kimball needs no introduction to those who are familiar with legislative matters for Missouri Public Schools. But for those of you who may not be familiar with Scott, Scott is an attorney by trade, but he is the Missouri Association of School Administrators Director of Advocacy, which includes numerous responsibilities, one of which is quarterbacking legislative advocacy efforts on behalf of school administrator associations and other associations supporting Missouri's public schools like Misha and Music. He does it all. Welcome, Scott Kimball. Thanks, Dwayne. How are, you, how are you doing, Scott? I know you must be in a recovery mode from the session. We are in recovery mode. I just got back from a trip to Disney with my family. Excellent. Uh, great. It wasn't really a vacation. It was more of a trip. But uh, it, it was nice to, to reconnect after a, a pretty grueling session. Well, that's outstanding. I hate to bring you back to thinking about some of these things, but uh, we do want to hear your insights on some of these. And you know, maybe the best place to start, Scott, is just to get your overall impression of this general session. You know, how do you think it went? Everything considered. Yeah, uh, it's a, a good starting point, right? I think that you have to look at this session from a, a glass half full perspective. There was a lot of positives uh, or were a lot of positives from this session, uh, particularly with regard to the budget that I think that we'll dive into here in a bit. But you know, there were also some things that passed that we weren't exactly thrilled with. But whenever you look at the session as a whole, I think you really have to say, hey, this was this was pretty positive. So looking at it from the you know school leader point of view, what would would you say are the big takeaways, the the big ticket items that uh, that came out of this session? Right. I, I think there are three things that I think that our our folks really need to focus on. One is the budget. House Bill 3002, or, or which I'll, I'll probably just refer to as House Bill 2, is the, the K-12 public education bill. Obviously, there's a, a, there are a number of things in there that, that administrators really need to pay attention to, and I think we'll spend some time talking about that here in a bit. I think you know our, our administrators also have to be really familiar with, with House Bill 1552, which was the charter funding slash virtual uh, provisions, and then I think you know the, the last... Uh, bill that I think they really need to be paying attention to is Senate Bill 681, which has 30 different uh, education-related provisions in it. Let's start with the, the t- at the top there of the three that you mentioned. From the budget point of view, Scott, what do you think are the big things that people need to be thinking about? You know, Dwayne, it was a great budget year. You know, I the thing that most people have that's drawn their attention is uh, the transportation funding, and rightfully so, you know, 214.4 million in new money uh, in the transportation categorical. It, it brings that total appropriation to something like 328.4 million. 
it's the first time since 1991 that the transportation categorical has been fully funded, which is amazing uh, in, in a good way that we finally have achieved full funding. It's sad that it's taken since 1991 to hit full funding, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, you know, we're thrilled that the legislature invested in our in our kids uh, with this with this money for the for the transportation categorical. I mean, we're elated. Right. The, mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, thing, Scott, but it, I mean, is it it hasn't even ever been really that close to being fully funded, has it? You're going to test me. I mean, this is I just completed my seventh session. And I think for for all seven sessions, we were somewhere under two hundred million dollars underfunded um, wow. in the transportation categorical. So this is huge. This is a special deal. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, what other kind of budgetary pieces do you think uh, we need to be thinking about? Yeah, Prop C, you know, is scheduled to to uh, to increase by one hundred ninety five million dollars, bringing that total, you know, line item to one point one billion dollars, which is massive for our public schools. I think that that, you know, some of the other provisions that are a little less money, but still important, you know, the legislature provided 37.4 million for career ladder and trying to kickstart that program again. That's a great thing for our for our teachers and for the districts that that utilize career ladder. Don't know how much it's going to be utilized this year, right? Because it's pretty late in the game for districts to be deciding on that. But nevertheless, for the districts that are going to make that decision, you know, that's a welcome site. You know, districts should also be aware in terms of the career ladder piece that if the governor signed Senate Bill 681, there was a provision in there that says that the state's going to pick up 60 percent of the tab for career ladder and and the districts will pick up 40. That's a change because the the uh, the law prior to Senate Bill 681 was a 40 60 split, meaning the state would pick up 40 percent. The districts would pick up 60. So this is an inverse of that. And they do need to be aware that, you know, some things were changed for career ladder and like allowing people in their second year to, to qualify for career ladder, whereas they, I believe they would have had to have completed their fifth year under the old law. And so there's some things there for career ladder that people need to take into consideration, but still it's $37.4 million to try and pay teachers more money, right? Which is a good thing. And in our opinion, the $21.8 million for raising the minimum teacher salary to 38,000. You know, that's something that we have supported and we've asked for our school districts to consider trying to take advantage of that. Some districts can't, you know, they, they don't have the money to, to do it. Uh, it's a 70-30 split, but whenever you take into consideration the benefits on top of that, it turns more into a 60-40 split. And so there are some districts that have to really look hard at that, but by and large, we've really tried to get our, our school districts to think long and hard about taking that money and raising that minimum salary to $38,000. It impacts approximately 8,500 school teachers, and, and it's something that we think that they should try and do. $25 million, Dwayne, to address some of the reading provisions that were passed in Senate Bill 681. You know, I don't know that that $25 million, you know, covers the full cost to try and implement that, that reading uh, those reading provisions, but nevertheless, it's $25 million for school districts to try and train their teachers and, and help in that regard. And so we're, we're really thankful for that $25 million. And frankly, Dwayne, you know, the list keeps going and going. I'm not, I'm not done. There was $25.5 million for career and tech ed centers 
you know, a lot of our career and tech ed centers were built in the, in the 60s or early 70s. They haven't received uh, the care maybe that they otherwise, you know, require. And so it comes in two different pots for this 25.5 million. Five and a half million of that 25.5 million is a 50-50 pot from House Bill 2. So the state will put in 50% if the district puts in 50%, right, to cover those costs. But in House Bill 3020, which was the ARPA bill, there was $20 million in there for career and tech ed centers, and that's a 75-25 split. So the state's going to put in 75% of the costs if the district's put in 25%. So obviously know which pot you should be going to first, but still $25.5 million to try and help districts renovate and revamp some of those career and tech ed centers, which is wonderful. And then $27 million in House Bill 3020, again, the ARPA bill for the testing, filtration, and remediation of lead in, in our drinking water in schools. Again, I don't know that the $27 million is enough to fully cover the cost of something like that, but still the legislature's coming in and saying, hey, look, this is important to us and we're going to invest to try and help districts cover some of the costs of some of these filters. So from, from our perspective, Dwayne, you know, the budget was massive. You know, I can't... I can't think, Scott, uh, and, and maybe you can kind of correct me on this, but I can't think of a year where we've had, you know, all of the appropriations that you just listed out in a budget of anything like that. I can't either. It's a, you know, so we have a lot to be thankful for in that regard, I think. Absolutely. From a budgetary perspective, I think that's going to color the entire, the entirety of session for public ed. And from that, from that lens, you know, the session was, was pretty solid. Outstanding. Well, um, you know, moving from the budget pieces, uh, you kind of mentioned as that second component that you were talking about, HB 1552, which is our charter funding slash virtual is kind of the way I think of it. And frankly, I focus mostly on the virtual pieces of it. But uh, what are your thoughts about that component? So, Dwayne, that's that's a really good question. As you noted, there are two major provisions in House Bill 1552. You know, this bill started off as the charter funding bill and is uh, really what that bill or what that provision or provision sought to do was try and give charter schools more money from six specific revenue, local revenue uh, line items. And I'm not going to remember all six of them, but it was like for payments in lieu of taxes, pilots, uh, state assessed railroad and utility, uh, merchants manufacturing tax, financial institution tax, so on and so forth. The charter schools felt like they were receiving less money than the traditional public schools, than the Kansas City School District and the St. Louis Public School Districts. And so they sought to pass this bill, which they believed would have brought financial equity to those uh, charter schools. And as you know, you know, this issue is not so cut and dry. There are things that districts, traditional public school districts, costs that they have that charter schools may not have. Uh, for instance, like transportation. And so what we were advocating for was to take a much broader view of what financial equity consisted of, um, right? You don't just look at these six local revenue line items and say, once we fund those the same, we have financial equity. We believe there's, there's a lot more to that equation. And so whenever the Senate began looking at this, they said, you know what? What we're going to do is instead of taking this money directly from uh, Kansas City and St. Louis public school districts, instead of taking it from them, 
we're actually just going to make this sort of like a formula payment. And so it's going to come from the state. And so there, there are two ways of looking at this. From the Kansas City St. Louis Public School District perspective, this is a this is a good thing for them because you know those two school districts are not going to have this revenue taken from them. Instead, it's going to come from the state. The state's going to have to pick up the cost. And I believe in the first year of implementation, it's going to cost the state over $60 million. And Desi believes that that $60 million is going to grow over time. I believe that they anticipate that that will grow by 3% each year, just as an example. And once you play that out over five years, that amount of money is now over $70 million. And so the Kansas City and St. Louis public school districts aren't going to lose that 60 plus million dollars every year. And the kids that attend those school districts aren't going to have their programs and services cut. And that's a wonderful thing for those districts. I think on the other hand, though, you have to pay attention to how this is going to play out for other school districts. So Kansas City and St. Louis are hold harmless school districts. And because they're hold harmless school districts, the charter schools that sit within those school districts are also treated as hold harmless. And so if there's ever an underfunding, if there's ever a withhold, then the hold harmless schools, they're going to get paid. They don't share in that loss, but formula districts will. And we have approximately 300 formula districts. And so if we ever don't have enough money to pay for the $70 million, then the districts that will lose out are the formula districts that may have nothing to do with charter schools. And so right now, whenever money is good, and we have, we have lots of money at present, uh, this isn't or shouldn't be an issue. But if we move you know, down the line and we start to hit a, a span where maybe state revenues aren't as great and we have to have a withhold or there's some sort of shortfall, the formula districts are gonna be the ones that, that lose out on that. So it's just something to pay attention to and something to be aware of. That really you know, hits the major points of the, the charter funding provision. And you, said there, and you said there was a second part of it too, though, right? On the, you've got the charter funding and kind of has that dual-edged sword that you talked about. But then it, it, an additional component of the same piece of legislation is the virtual piece, right? Right. And so that's the thing, you know, that whenever you start looking at the virtual components, we were not thrilled with these provisions. You know, it removes the the best educational interest determination, which is something that that we thought was, was quality in the current MOCAP statute. It also removed the ability for, for school districts to remove a child from a poor performing full-time virtual program if it just wasn't working out. And so both of those things came out. And the reason why they removed those two, uh, those two provisions were that they're changing sort of the funding structure for MOCAP. So now if you're a student that's, say, in Jeff City and you participate in MOVA, the Missouri Virtual Academy, that uh, virtual academy is hosted by the Grandview R2 School District. And so even though the student resides within the Jefferson City School District, they are going to be considered under this bill to be the student of Grandview R2. They're going to be the student of the host district. And so if they're no longer your student, you no longer have the ability to make the best educational interest determination or to remove that student from a potentially a poor performing virtual environment whenever it comes to full-time programs. And so, you know, those are two major changes. 
Another, uh, I think, significant change that districts need to be aware of, and, and frankly, I don't know how this is going to work out right now, is the bill is going to create, I guess what you would call collaborative agreement IEPs, if you will. Now, most people would hear IEP and think special ed, and that is absolutely one component part of this. But the bill states that if a student requires additional education services, and the full-time provider, virtual provider, cannot provide those educational services, then they need to enter in with the local resident school district, enter into a collaborative agreement to provide those educational services. And educational services is not defined in the bill. So again, it's much more expansive or more expansive than just special ed, right? You're going to be looking at other things and what might those things be. And, and right now, we don't really know. So that's something to keep, you know, our, our attention on and, and try and watch for rules and regs that come out of DESE that kind of help districts uh, with these mini virtual IEPs, these collaborative agreements. Sounds like that'll be tricky business. But like you said, we'll have to kind of wait until we get a further guidance from, from the department before we really know what the contours of that will ultimately look like, right? That's right. And, uh, that one's going to be one to watch, I think, and will be, you know, difficult to kind of work through some of those things. Uh, I think, uh, you know, just the feedback I'm getting from school administrators is they're a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit upset about no longer being the, you know, the ones to make that determination of what is in the best educational interest of a student and trying to be able to make those decisions for their kids. But we'll see how that works itself out over time. Which kind of brings us to the third component, which is the omnibus bill, the 681, and ended up being, uh, you know, obviously you've got the reading component, but a whole lot more. Uh, would you agree? Yeah, this is a massive bill. Um, <laughs> there's, there's no doubt about it. It's got 30 provisions in it. You know, and some of these provisions that are in the bill, Dwayne, are, they're massive. You know, the bill started out as a reading bill, a literacy bill. And there's a lot to it. You know, um, we, we wrote a, a four page write up on these literacy provisions uh, alone. And, you know, we, we urge our, our districts to begin looking at these reading provisions right away because there's an implementation date for these reading provisions for the substantive provisions in the reading portions of the bill of January 1, 2023. So, you know, that's mid-year and our districts really, you know, need to get cracking on this, on, on these reading provisions. Particularly those that maybe employ different methodologies than what's contemplated by the new statute, right? I mean, for some, it's going to be a kind of a hard shift and others, it'll be relatively, uh, you know, minor changes. That's at least what I'm hearing from superintendents out there. That's, that's, that's pretty spot on, uh, Dwayne, the, you know, for it feels like this bill is is pushing districts more towards structured literacy, um, the chunking of, of words, phonemic awareness, phonics type of, of reading methodologies, whereas some districts in the state are utilizing, you know, comprehensive literacy or balanced literacy, as it's often called. And so because this bill is pushing people or districts more towards structured literacy, there, there might be a pretty steep curve for some districts trying to move that direction. Now, again, the legislature's given $25 million to help 
train teachers. And so districts really need to be paying attention to how they might be able to take advantage of that $25 million fund. But there's a lot here whenever it comes to reading. What other things are, I mean, you mentioned that there are 30-some provisions that uh, ended up in 681. I know you can't go through them all, Scott, but, you know, just kind of cherry picking a little bit. What what do you see as the highlights of that particular piece of legislation? No, I think, Dwayne, the other thing that, that districts really need to pay attention to is the provisions in there regarding lead remediation. You know, there are a number of harmful effects from from having lead in your drinking water. And so the legislature is, is trying to address that issue. Uh, we want to make sure that we have safe drinking water for our kids. I think that's, you know, that's a given, uh, right? We want to have safe drinking water. And there was a study that came out in the fall that showed that, that Missouri has, you know, some high concentrations of lead. And the legislature, seeing that report, decided that this is something that they wanted to tackle this year. And so there are some, uh, there is a provision in there regarding remediation of lead in our drinking water. And it's not only touches on filtering of water, but it also addresses testing and some protocols that I think that districts are really going to have to pay attention to. And you're going to have to involve your maintenance and custodial staff in trying to address these issues. So I think that that's going to be something that districts are really going to need to pay attention to. Again, there was $27 million provided in, in, in House Bill 3020 to help districts with this remediation effort, with installing filters and things of that nature. And so our districts need to familiarize themselves with how to obtain that funding and how to utilize that funding. But that's another major provision that I think the districts should really pay attention to. In terms of what else is in the bill, you know, that districts need to pay attention to, there was a, a provision in there from House Bill 1750 that requires districts to create a community engagement policy uh, that provides, you know, residents of the district with methods of communicating with school board members or administrators. That policy, you know, is going to have to create a process to allow community members to place topics on school board meeting agendas. And once that is on an agenda, it's it's going to require that that the school board ad- address those topics. And you know, the provision allows for districts to build in some parameters in terms of the length of, of allowing a, a patron to, to talk, the amount of time that they get to speak, how many people might get to speak on that particular issue. And those are, those are good parameters, but it is something that I think that our districts are going to have to pay attention to and our administrators are going to have to be aware of. There was a, a provision in there regarding mandatory gifted instruction. And, you know, MASA and all of our uh, administrator organizations are in favor of, of gifted instruction. You know, it's something that we wish that every single school district in the state could offer. Our concern with this provision is that they did not provide funding to help districts offer gifted. And so, you know, that's something that we're going to be revisiting in in future sessions is trying to address the, the lack of funding for mandatory gifted instruction. Again, we're fully in support of gifted, but we just want to make sure that our districts have the funding to, to do the program right and to make it a quality program for kids. You know, there's another provision in the in the bill that I think that districts need to pay attention to. It's called the Bright Act. Uh, I think that they, you know, for if you're a special ed administrator, you need to pay attention to this particular provision because uh, there are some things in it that might be a little bit difficult to meet in terms of of mobility requirements and things of that nature for uh, students that have vision related issues. Um, there was a provision in the bill 
regarding school buildings that are in the bottom 5% whenever they look at their APR. So this provision is going to require the state to issue each building an APR, which DESE already does, but this will require it by state statute. And any building that is in the bottom 5% of buildings in the state is going to have to do a couple things, several things, actually. So if they're in the bottom 5%, they're going to be required to post in each attendance center that is in the bottom 5% that they are in the bottom 5%. They're going to require the district to place that on the district's website that they have particular buildings or a building that is in the bottom 5%. DESE is going to have to indicate that on their state website. And then districts are going to have to inform parents of students that attend that building of their educational choice opportunities that they have available to them. So if they're in an area where charter schools are located or if they're able to participate in the voucher tax, uh, voucher tax credit program, virtual, so on and so forth. In our opinion, Dwayne, you know, there's no school improvement with this provision. In our opinion, this is to shame. Um, right. And it, and it almost uh, thwarts the ability to improve in that building because you're eroding the, you know, the student enrollment. You're, you know, trying to kind of steer them to other alternatives. And it's almost as if you're pushing upon them the idea that and reinforcing the idea that you're in the bottom 5%. So it seems exactly. like it, it's really well, not a, an opportunity to improve. Lowering morale, and, and even though you know a particular building might be making significant strides in improving things, they still might fall in the bottom 5%, but this is going to attempt to label them as, as quote-unquote failures. And that's, again, I, I think what, what we would say is there, there's no real school improvement there. That, in our opinion, this is just a shame. And so there are some things, like I said, you know, that whenever you have a bill that has 30 different provisions and there are going to be some things in it that, that aren't great. And that 5% provision is one of them. Um, but there are other provisions that, you know, are good for kids. We think that these reading provisions while challenging are going to help kids. And, and that's a positive thing. And there's some other provisions in the bill that we could talk for another 30 minutes, you know, plus about just this bill, but, you know, for the interest of time, it's uh, I think I'll leave it at that in terms of Senate bill 681. Good. Well, you know, with uh, 681, it, it, you know, it is a waterfront of issues that are included in the legislation. But, you know, when you compare what ultimately ended up in 681 vis-a-vis -vis what was initially proposed on each one of those pieces of individual legislation, you know, I, I suppose we really need to be thankful for kind of where we ended up. Yeah, exactly. And I, I you know, I'll take a, I'll kind of dovetail off that, you know, the original provision right, the reading provisions, those initial iterations were not good, you know, and, and were not quality. And to Senator Laughlin's credit, uh, you know, she sat down and she got to work on these reading provisions and she worked with stakeholders to try and address this bill and, and get it in a place where it was good for kids. And like I said, there are going to be challenges with this bill. Is it a perfect bill? No. It's not a perfect bill. Is it a good bill? It's a good bill. It's just going to take some time for districts to acclimate, find their footing, and, and get to work. So well said. You know, in, uh, in kind of closing things out, Scott, I, I did want to ask you this particular question. And, uh, you know, it seems like each year we have maybe one or two people that stand out, and you can see that they really 
stepped up for public schools in Missouri and uh, really did go to bat for public schools. And I was just going to ask you, you know, who do you think the one or two people, maybe a few more if you want, but, you know, who, who do you think really stepped up to the plate on behalf of public schools in this general session? Yeah. So, Dwayne, I think the, you know, the folks that come to mind first are the, the Senate Appropriations Committee. You know, the folks on there inserted large sums of money for public education, right? The $214.4 million in additional transportation funding was not in the House budget. But the Senate Appropriations Committee said that this is something that we want to do. And so, you know, they get a shout out. I think that, you know, to be a little bit more specific, I think you've, you've got to give special praise to Senator Lincoln Huff, you know, the vice chair cares deeply about uh, the transportation categorical and making sure that that uh, districts are fully funded that line item and also to the Senate appropriations chair Senator Dan Hageman you know he's he's the one that you know that really has the keys to the castle when it comes to the budget and and he he worked hard to try and get that line item fully funded and so you know I think the Senate appropriations committee deserves a ton of praise and then specifically those two individuals um, you know really stood out this year, Dwayne. Yeah, and it, there will be a significant long-term impact from what those two individuals did and uh, on behalf of public schools this year. So something to be praised, I think. And uh, well, I, I do appreciate you taking the time, Scott. I think it's very helpful to our listeners to, to get your perspective and your insight. Always valuable to talk to you and learn uh, more about what's happening in our fair capital uh, each year. Appreciate you, Dwayne. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Appreciate all you do for public ed. Well, thank you, Scott, for those comments and your insights. And and we thank you, the listeners, for taking the time today to listen to Ed Council Insights. We hope you'll follow and share our podcast on social media and subscribe to hear upcoming episodes on current legal topics and issues related to school law. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, or you can check us out at our website, Just Google Ed Council, that's E-D-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, all one word, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together, and thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.